30 years now, so praise the Lord that he's given us that relationship. But we are looking at the Lord today, we are looking at the glory of God, and as we get back into Revelation chapter 4, we are moving into the prophetic passages of Revelation. So everything from here on out to the end of the book is going to be future. So in Revelation chapter 4, we're going to read all 11 verses in this chapter. And I don't know that we'll get through all of it today unless you guys want to stay uh, till supper time. I, I told my wife when I started studying this, I hope we can do this in one message. And then I said last night, only if we stay for three or four hours. So it, we're not going to do that. We'll get as much as we can. But I want you to see what God's word has for us in Revelation 4. Let, so let's start at verse 1. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is John speaking. He says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper, and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Father, I pray now as we come before your word and submit ourselves to what you have to teach us today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Speak to us about your glory about the worship that we need to give you, about who you are in reality. Lord, I pray that you would remove from us the imaginations that we have that are faulty about who you are as God, that we can see you clearly this morning. Lord, we need you to do your work, to open our minds and our hearts, to receive that which you have for us. And Lord, I need your help as I preach this message. I need you to give me the words. I need you to fill me with the Spirit. So Lord, please, Give me your strength and your power, your message to speak today, so that we might hear from you and be challenged by your truth. Lord, we want you to be glorified, not just in our lives, but in this time. We want this message and this, our attention, even, to glorify you as we share this time with you. 
and look into your word together. And we'll give you praise and glory for what you're going to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're coming back into the book of Revelation. We started our study, and in John chapter 1, John, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1, um, just a quick review, we saw the glorified Christ as John was given the vision of Jesus Christ as he is now, not the humble servant, but as the glorified Christ, the almighty judge of the earth. So we saw that in chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3 were Christ's letters to the church, and, and he gave these letters to John to give to the churches. And those seven churches that we looked at were seven physical, literal churches that existed in John's time, but they were representative of all the church throughout all time. And so as we read those seven letters and looked at those seven letters, that brought us basically from John's time up to our time. Those seven churches represent the church age, which we are living in now and hopefully soon are coming to an end of. But as we entered chapter 4, the beginning of this book starts with the prophetic, because Jesus says right away, I'm going to show you these things which shall be hereafter. So just so we know we're entering into the prophetic part of Revelation, these things have not happened yet for the most part. Okay? Now... Here's the thing that I want us to see, because this is the important thing. It's not about the future events that are going to happen. It's not about the details of the prophecy. Just like in chapter 1 and through the messages of chapters 2 and 3 to the churches, we have to see Jesus Christ and God Almighty through all of these passages. That it is all about glorifying him in our worship and in our living. If we miss the fact that we're here to glorify Christ, we've missed it, period. Okay? So this is centering on the glory of God. And that's what we're reading here. It's interesting to see the details. It's interesting to see the things that Jesus says are going to happen. And they're going to happen possibly in our lifetime, some of them. We don't know. Okay? But we need to see the glory of God. Because that's the most important thing. We already have sung, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. He continues to do great things for us. So our focus is on the glory of God. That's what we see in chapter 4 of Revelation as we enter into the throne room of God. Now I want to point out one thing before we get into this passage. Okay, There are many people who have claimed to have died and gone to heaven. And then they come back to life and have given us their account of that experience. They describe things that they saw and they did. They tell us what heaven was like. They said they met uh, deceased loved ones and friends. Uh, Some of them said they met Jesus. They held his hand. They talked with him. They walked with him. Okay, they've explained different things that they saw. Here's the one thing, and I've looked at a lot of these accounts. Most of them are missing what we see in John or in Revelation chapter 4. Now, Revelation chapter 4 is God's word, so we know it is true. I will put this over any book that somebody puts out about their experience in heaven. This is an experience or a glimpse into heaven. Now, we have two other passages in Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel tells us of his vision of heaven, and Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah tells us of his vision of heaven. And all three of them say the same things and are very similar. Unfortunately, what we read from people on earth who claim to have been to heaven 
is that all of this is missing. This is what heaven is like. And that's what we need to understand. When we get to heaven, it will be joyful to reunite with people that we've lost, that we're trusting Christ. But our focus is not going to be on that. Our focus is going to be on the throne of God. Because that is the center of everything. Okay? And we can see that as we read and look at this passage. Because people imagine different things about God and different things about what they think heaven will be like, that is why the church as a whole has lost its sense of true worship. Because we think worship, or we've degraded worship, we've trivialized it and watered it down to be basically entertainment for us where we feel good and in that feeling good then we have some kind of experience with God in our minds. That's not what worship is at all. Worship is about acknowledging the, the God who is on the throne. It's acknowledging his worship, the fact that he is over and above everything else. There's no comparison. And because we've missed that, our worship has become trivialized for the most part. So our worship really is contained in the fact that we recognize the God who sits on the throne and give him the glory that he deserves. And that's what John sees here in Revelation chapter 4. So I'm going to look at this passage, and we're kind of going to break it down, because I want us to see in detail this picture of heaven that John sees in this vision that he has. So we go back to verse 1, and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. John says, after this I look. Now, he starts by saying, after this. After what? Well, this is chapter 4. It's after the things that have just happened. In chapter 1, he had the vision of the glorified Christ. And he saw Christ as he is now. The, The risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ as the judge of the earth. The king of heaven. Okay? That was the first thing. Chapters 2 and 3, I already mentioned, he had the the letters that were given to him by Jesus Christ to give to the churches. These are the messages of Jesus to the church directly. And so those were churches that existed. They apply to the churches in the church age of which we are part. And now in chapter 4, he says, after this, after the things that we just experienced or read in in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so we're moving on to the next thing. So this vision now is coming after these, this le- the letters to the seven churches. He's moving from the things which are to the things which shall be. And, and God told him in, in Revelation chapter 1, there's three sections. There's the things that you've seen, those are the things that are past. The things which you are seeing or will experience now, that's what's the present. That was John chapter 1 and 2 and th- I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1, 2 and 3. And now we are in the things that are to come, starting in Revelation chapter 4. At the end of the verse 1, you see he uses a very similar phrase. He says, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. In the Greek, those two phrases are almost exactly the same. So he's saying, after the things which I saw, I'm going to see the things which are to come. Okay? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So Christ is going to show John the things which will take place in the future. Now, I want to pause here just for a second because I want to give you a footnote. And I'm going to give you several of these throughout the message today. But it helps us to understand the Bible a little bit better as we look at the Bible in its entirety and then put these passages 
into their proper context within the scripture, okay? Whenever we read scripture, we have to remember this. This book was primarily written to Jews. These were Jesus' people. This message is to the Jews. Now, it's for us, too. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. So we get benefit. We gain from this. The gospel is in the Bible, okay? But the message is primarily to Jews, and Christ's ministry, in fact, was primarily focused on his own people, the Jews. So as we read scripture, we have to make sure that we read it within a Jewish context as well. John is a Jew. John is writing to the church, but there's also very much Jewish interaction that's going to happen in all the things that we will see in the book of Revelation. And so we have to remember that it's in that context. In fact, the entire Old Testament is a history of the Jews, from Abraham to the destruction of, and captivity, captivity of Israel and, and Judah. Basically, the, the prophets end right after the temple is destroyed and Israel is scattered among the nations. They, they're taken captive and spread all throughout the world. And then that's the end of the Old Testament for us. And usually we say, well, there's 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. That's the 400 years of silence. Well, the Bible doesn't actually have anything recorded during that time, but there's lots of history that we learn during that time. But it's all in the context of the Jewish history. The New Testament is a narrative of the Messiah promised to the Jews. Okay? So the, the Bible is a Jewish book, in a sense. It was written by Jews. And we have to take it that way. So at the end of the New Testament now, where we are, we have this vision that's given to John about what would happen to the Jews in the end time. And that's the way we have to look at the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, there are things about the church, there are things about other heathen nations, but it primarily focuses on the Jews. In Bible study on Wednesdays, we're studying Daniel, and we're in Daniel chapter 9. It's not a coincidence that we ended up there right now. Okay, the second part of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel receives a vision or an answer from the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel gives him the prophecy of what we call the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're going to go over this in detail on Wednesday, so if you want to find out more, join us then. But the summary is this. The 70 weeks is 70 groups of seven years. So there's 490 years that the angel Gabriel is telling Daniel about the history or about what's going to happen with Israel. It begins, this 490 years, begins at the return of Israel from captivity to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. This is done, uh, proclaimed by Cyrus. He lets the captives go back to Israel. You can read that account in Ezra and Nehemiah. They go back, they rebuild the, temp the, the city wall, they rebuild the temple, and begin worshiping God again. That begins the 490 years. Then that goes all the way up to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That uh, period of time between the return to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple until Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey is 483 years. Okay? So we're missing seven years. The seven years that fill out that 490 years are the seven years of the Great Tribulation because that focuses 
on Israel. And you say, what happens to all that time in between? Well, think of it this way. In Israel's history, God pushes pause. Israel, in 70 AD, or actually right after Christ is crucified, the persecution begins by 70 AD. They're driven out and slaughtered by the Romans. The temple is destroyed again, and there is no temple. There has not been one since then. Gentiles have taken over Jerusalem at that point in Jewish history in 70 AD, and they have maintained control of Jerusalem ever since. It's called the, Gen- the time of the Gentiles. It's, Jesus referenced it in the book of Luke. And so the time of Gentiles is this pause between the 69th week when, Israel, when, when Christ came into Jerusalem and the 70th week, which will begin in the end times in the tribulation. Okay? We're in the church age. That's the pause because right now God is focusing on the church. But even through the church, he has a message for Israel. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Okay? So what we're seeing here takes place right at the beginning of that last seven years or that last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay? This is where John is in his vision. Now, when he had the vision, the 70 weeks was kind of uh, pause. It was right at the pause part because Jesus had just gone up into heaven. Okay? It hadn't been very long and Um, In fact, he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so it's going to happen very soon here. But what we have is John having this vision right at the point of the unpause or the beginning of the last seven years of, of Daniel's 70 weeks. And here's what Jesus told him. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, John says, Jesus gives him this vision and he looks up into heaven and sees a door opened into heaven. Now, he uses the word behold because behold is kind of an exclamation of surprise. He wasn't expecting to look up into the sky and see a door opened into heaven. Now, what we're talking about is not just a door in the sky, okay? What John saw was something that physically can't be seen with the human eye. The heaven that he's talking about here is what Paul refers to as the third heaven, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about his kind of uh, experience where he's taken out of the body or in the body. He cannot tell, but he goes and he sees things in heaven that are not lawful to be uttered by any man, is what he tells us. And so he doesn't tell us anything about his vision or his experience. But he says he was taken up to the third heaven. Now, what they mean by the third heaven is the first heaven for us is our atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. Beyond that, in dimension, is heaven, and that's where God resides. So that's what we're talking about. This is not a door opening to outer space or beyond our atmosphere. This is a door that, God, that John sees open directly into the throne room of God. Now, this is only one of four times that a door is mentioned in Revelation. Uh, we've already seen the other three. If you remember, if you uh, go back to chapter 3, there's the door of opportunity that is open for the church at Philadelphia. Remember, they were persecuted immensely, and God says, I've opened a door that no man can close. It was a door of opportunity for them to bring the gospel to people who actually had been persecuting them the worst. So God gave them this open door. And later on in chapter 3 of Revelation, twice Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open that door, 
I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. So there's the second reference that we have to the door. That is the door of people's hearts, the door of the church, if you will, that Christ wants to come in and have fellowship with. And here we have a door that opens to heaven. So this is the the fourth reference, kind of the third instance of, of door. But it's through this door that we have an entrance into heaven. This is the first time we've seen something like this. And John is looking through this door. Now this is the door that is open to heaven through which the church now has been raptured. Okay? Now I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But the rapture has happened at this point. The church has gone from the earth. And we'll talk about that in a second. But John is looking through this door. And as he stands and is looking through this door into heaven, he hears a voice. And it says, the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Do you remember that? Do you remember that phrase, as a trumpet? Go back to chapter 1. Okay, in chapter 1, John talks about Jesus Christ talking to him. And he says his voice was like a trumpet. So he hears the voice of Jesus Christ here calling him. And he says, the first voice which I heard as as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee these things which much be hereafter. So Jesus is calling him to come through this door. Now, Jesus never calls us to do something that he will not enable us to do. John doesn't stand there and go, well, Jesus is calling me, but I have no way to get to heaven. How am I going to get up there? If Jesus calls us, he will enable us. Now, look at the next verse, his first phrase. He says, I immediately was in the Spirit. The only way we can truly meet Jesus or God face to face is in our spirit. That's why he says God is a spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is not about the activity. Worship is about communing with God in our spirit. That's why you don't have to be in church to worship him. He's a spirit, he's all present, he's always with us, and his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we can have worship with the Lord, we can worship him all the time in our spirit. It's not restricted to church. But the way that John was transported was in his spirit. God takes him in his spirit to be there right in the throne room of God. And he's in the future of where he is on earth. Now, some will say that this call of Christ at this point represents the rapture of the church. I don't believe that. And I'll tell you why, because he called John specifically to come up through the door. Okay? It was John alone who's going there. It's not like he said, I went up and there was a whole bunch of people who went with me. Okay? This also is not a permanent thing. John did not get called up to heaven and then stay there. The rapture, when we go to heaven, we're going to be with Christ forever after that. John goes up for a short period of time, receives this vision from Christ, and then is sent back in his body, basically, to record these things for us us and for our, our benefit. So he goes through this door, and he's in the throne room of God. And so this is Christ calling for John to join him in heaven and receive this vision. Verse 2, he says, I immediately was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. There's three times in Revelation where John says he's in the spirit. And each one, God allows him to see future events. Okay? Here is the first one. In chapter 17, verse 3, he's transported into the wilderness to see what's called the whore of Babylon, the woman 
that rides upon the scarlet horse, okay? With, she represents all the sin of the world. But he says, I was in the spirit and he was transported into the wilderness. And in chapter 21, verse 10, he's transported into a high mountain after all of the judgments of earth have taken place. And then he's put up on a high mountain in spirit again, and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So those are the three times that he says, I was in the spirit. But in this instance, he says, I was in the spirit, and the first thing he sees is a throne. Now, again, I mentioned in my introduction, people have claimed to have gone to heaven, and they come back with all kinds of stories. I'm not going to say they didn't go. Okay, what I say is this. Their stories don't match with what John saw. The most prominent thing in heaven is the throne room of God because he is at the center of everything. You cannot say you visited heaven and come back with no account of seeing God's throne because that's what heaven is. It's God's dwelling place, and he is at the center of that, and that's exactly what John sees. So he says, behold, again, he's astounded by what he sees. He says, I saw the throne of God, or a throne, and he he understands whose throne it is, but he gives us this description here. He says, I saw a throne, and everything that he describes from here on out centers on that throne, and we have to have that perspective. It's not just a bunch of things and details that he gives us here. It is the details that center on the throne of God. That is our life. In a nutshell, as a believer, it's all the details of our life that should center around the throne and the glory of God. So John goes and he explains this throne. He says there was a throne standing in heaven or set in heaven. The word here, set, means a permanent position. This throne was unmovable. It was there for eternity, something that is fixed, that will never move. And it's not a piece of furniture. It is an existence of God. It is a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority. That's what the throne represents. It's not like John sees, oh, you know, it has wooden arms and wooden legs. He doesn't describe that at all. All he says is there is a throne. It is a symbolic of authority and power. So he's seeing, literally, God's authority and power here. So he says, I saw this throne and this throne is actually mentioned in all but three chapters of Revelation to show us how important the throne of God is, not just in the perspective of the things to come, but in the perspective of all of life and all of creation. Okay? The throne has to be at the center. And then he says this, and one sat on the throne. Now, from here on out, everything else focuses on that one, and that is God. He doesn't tell us that it's God but it's assumed that we already understand the only one who sits on the throne is heaven, is God the Father Almighty. He is the King of kings. He is the Almighty Judge, and he rules and reigns forever. And so he sits on the throne. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had his vision of heaven, just like John did here. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. First thing that comes out of Isaiah's mouth when he is given this vision of the, heaven, the throne room of God, I see the throne, and I see the Lord sitting upon the throne in power and glory. Ezekiel explains a very similar situation when he is given a vision of heaven in Ezekiel chapter 1. 
And he talks about the throne room of God and all the activities that are taking place there. Now, one other point here. Usually we will associate as human beings the throne with a king who lives in a palace, right? That's the earthly perspective. Remember when God established Israel as a nation. Who was their king originally? God. They didn't have a king. Remember, they didn't have a king until way later in their history. And then they started complaining to God, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king like everybody else does. But God was their king. They didn't have a kingly palace or a a white house or a capitol building or anything in their history. They had a temple because the temple represented God's presence. That's where he lived. And so we're not talking about a throne in a palace here. What John sees is God's throne, his symbol of authority and power. He sees the one sitting on the throne in authority and power in his temple. Now, God's temple can be defined as anywhere where the presence of God is. In heaven, we know that God is there. That is his temple, ultimately. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he lives within us. We are not our own. So the presence of God is right here. That's why we're called a temple. So this throne doesn't represent necessarily just a king. This throne represents absolute authority in all realms of life. And that's what he means when he says our body is the temple. God lives in us and he has authority in us. And so this is John seeing the throne of God, seeing the one who sits on the throne with power and glory and authority, and we're going to see what that leads to in what he sees next, okay? So here is the truest temple of God, heaven, that John is seeing in the throne room of God, and then he goes on to describe the appearance of the one who sits on the throne. Now what you're going to find interesting here, starting in verse 3, is he doesn't talk about his face, he doesn't talk about his arms and his legs and his hands and his feet and the robes that he wore. Because God cannot be defined as a person. God does not have a bodily form like a person. Jesus Christ is God, he took on bodily form for us, but God, in essence, is not a person as far as we understand a human body is concerned. And so look at how he describes God in verse 3. This is not the throne he's describing. This is God he's describing. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. John doesn't see a person. He sees an essence. He sees basically light. He says to look upon as if light was shining through and reflecting from these jewels that he is uh, uh, describing. He wasn't saying, okay, on the throne there were these stones. He's saying to look at God or the glory of God, it was like looking at light that was shining through these jewels. And then he describes the jewels. He says it's jasper, the first one. Jasper is a clear and very brilliant stone And most uh, scholars think this jasper is very much or could be our diamonds of today. You never find diamonds mentioned by name in the Bible. But a jasper is described as a very similar stone to diamonds. So think of a diamond. Think of the, the most beautiful diamond, you know, with all the facets cut. And when you shine light through it, how that light is refracted through that diamond and it just sparkles everywhere. And you get all the colors of the rainbow that just kind of spread out. 
That's what John sees here. But it's not light being reflected. It's light coming from God. Okay? Now, Jasper is one of the stones that represents the tribe of, uh, one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. This is the smallest tribe. The jasper is actually one of the stones that was set into the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And it represents purity. And we're going to see this idea of this clear, bright light again in this chapter. So he has, sees light almost like it's shining through a jasper. Ezekiel chapter 1, actually, Ezekiel explains the same thing. He says it was like a blazing light. It was like fire coming out of the throne. Okay, so they see the same thing. Then he says this sardin stone. Now, sardin stone is a red stone, much like a ruby. It was named after Sardis. We studied this, the, the church at Sardis. Okay, they were a very rich city. In fact, they were rich because they mined gems. They had gold that was very abundant. Um, And this was one of the stones they were famous for, the Sardis stone. It was named after the city. But it's a very very red, brilliant stone. And it exudes a red light when it shines light upon it. Now, in the book of Revelation specifically, but mostly through the scripture, whenever you see this color red, it represents the judgment of God, specifically bloodshed. Okay? And so God is not just a God of holiness and purity, the jasper stone, that diamond. He's also a God of judgment. And we are about to see in the the coming chapters the judgment that God is getting ready to carry out upon sinful men. And so this jasper or the sardine stone, this red stone, represents the judgment of God. And those who did not claim cleansing through Christ's blood will have their own blood spilled in judgment. As you get to the end of the the, uh, tribulation, there's a battle that happens when Christ comes back at his second coming. And he goes up the valley and goes all the way to Jerusalem and tramples. It says he tramples his enemy. And I think it's the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in his prophecy says, They looked upon him and they said, There's blood. You have blood stained on the hem of your garment. And he says, it's from trampling my enemies. That is the blood of my enemies. And so this Sardis Sardis stone here, this red blood, represents the judgment of God. And he is about to execute that judgment upon the earth. John goes on. He says, there's a rainbow around the throne. In verse uh, 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, he says, uh, there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, if we remember, the rainbow was given to Noah. Okay? It was a symbol of God's faithfulness and his promise that he would never again destroy the earth with water. Now, has God ever destroyed the earth, the entire earth and all mankind with water since then? No. And he's not going to. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, we'll find out at the end of time he's going to destroy the earth with fire. Okay, if you want to call that global warming, yeah, there, I believe in global warming, okay, because he's going to destroy the earth with fire. Fervent heat, the Bible says. Okay, but that's God's global warming. But this symbol of the rainbow was a promise of God's faithfulness in not destroying the earth with water ever again. He gave it to Noah, and we've seen it. We're reminded every time we see the rainbow. That is God's promise of his faithfulness. Now, what we see is half the rainbow. Because we only see it from horizon to horizon. It goes across and we go, oh, that's a rainbow. I remember it, like when I was six years old, I had to draw a picture of a rainbow. And I was, I was not the most conforming child at that point. So, you know, I did the arch 
like you're supposed to. And then I used like black and brown and gray and and the teacher came up and she said, that's not the color. I said, that's my rainbow. But this rainbow is not even the colors of the normal rainbow that we see. John says the rainbow was the color of an emerald or a bright green. Now, there's no explanation here about this. It may just be that the green was the dominant color of that rainbow. But he describes it as green. One commentator says this, the first rainbow was seven, had seven primary colors. This one is all green, symbolic of freshness and fruitfulness regarding the coming perfect kingdom of Christ. That's a possibility because all life will be perfect at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The earth will be basically what the Garden of Eden should have been through all time. Okay, But he sees this green rainbow, and instead of just half the rainbow, he sees a complete circle that sits around the throne of God. Now, if we see the rainbow, and as we see it, we see half the rainbow, again, God's faithfulness. But as John sees it, it's a complete circle, which means his faithfulness never ends. And it's his complete promise to the world and to believers. All the promises that he's made to us will never fail. So that's what this circle represents. So John sees the light coming from the throne. That is the glory of God. He sees this rainbow around the throne that's green. And then in verse 4 he says, he sees what's around the throne. You know, sitting or standing around the throne. And it says in verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So as he looks beyond the glory of God here, he's starting to notice the other things out from the center, which is the throne of God. And now he sees these other thrones, 24 of them specifically. And on the thrones he sees elders sitting. Now, we're going to spend probably the rest of our time talking about these elders because if we jump into the next section, then I have to keep going, then we'll have to stay here till uh, 4 o'clock, okay? But John sees these 24 elders. Now, I want to give you as much information because there's a lot of speculation about these 24 elders, who they are, what do they represent. He doesn't explain it here. Now, there's hints through Scripture, so I'm going to tell you what I believe, from scripture. First of all, we know that the number 24 stands for a representation of the whole. In Leviticus, God set apart 24 priests to work at each shift, if you will. They, they, they worked in shifts, and 24 priests worked in the temple at one time. But they represented all of the priesthood. They represented all of Israel. So that 24 is a number that represents all of something. So whatever these 24 elders, they represent all of something. Now, who they are, some say they're angels. I don't agree with that, because angels in the Bible are never referred to as elders, presbyteros. Remember, Uh, when we studied the, the elders of the church, we learned that word presbyteros. That applies only to earthly elders, okay, in the Bible. Also, it talks about these, el- these um, sorry, the elders at the end of verse 4. It says they had crowns of gold on their head. Angels are never described as having crowns of gold. So I don't believe these are angels. Also, angels are never spoken of in Scripture as having a ruling authority or a co-rule with Christ. 
which is significant by these thrones. The throne represents authority. The elders sitting on the thrones represent that they have been given authority from the one in the throne. Angels have never been given and will never be given ruling authority over mankind or anything else. They are messengers of God and they are servants of God. Okay? So I don't believe these are angels. So that means they have to be men of some kind. Some will say that these are, represent then the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which then would represent all of the believing, of, all of believing people of Israel in the Old Testament and all of the church in the New Testament. Okay, and these elders are sitting there in 12 for the church and 12 for Israel, and together that makes 24. That's a possibility, okay? I think that's more possible than 12 angels, or 24 angels. I don't think it's angels. But I don't believe, actually, that it is Israel either. I think this represents just the church, and I'll explain why. Israel did have elders, But I don't think these elders represent Israel because God is very specific in Scripture as far as the church and Israel are concerned. There's a very specific distinction between them. In fact, the church is God's uh, structure, God's institution, if you will, that he established in order to make Israel jealous for him. He says that in the Bible. So that is the church. It is distinct from Israel. There's not a blending of the two. And as we look into the future of what's going to happen on this earth, if we look in the past of what's happened on this earth, there's always been that distinction. If you read the New Testament in the the epistles, especially in Romans, Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear that when someone believes on Jesus Christ after Pentecost, It doesn't matter anymore whether they're Jew or Greek. They become the body of Christ. So Jewishness is erased, basically, in the New Testament church. There's no distinction of, oh, that's a Jewish church or that's a Gentile church. We're one church. So the church is its own institution. Israel is its own nation, a nation favored by God. So we start with that premise, but then we have to remember that everything that God has given us in Scripture also gives us pictures and types, if we will, about the reality of the spiritual kingdom, of God's kingdom. So at this point, we can assume or know that the church has been raptured because we're at the beginning of the tribulation. And I can give you those passages in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that talk about us being raptured up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells the church at Thessalonians that Christ is going to spare us or, or deliver us from the great tribulation. He doesn't use those words. He says the, the wrath of God, but it is a the definite article, which means the church will be delivered before the great tribulation starts. So with all of that said, we assume where John is here that the church has already been raptured. They're in heaven, okay? Secondly, in Daniel chapter 12, which we'll study when we get to Daniel chapter 12, God gives Daniel some details about the great tribulation, about the time of Israel's trouble, the, the great turmoil and persecution that they will undergo. That's in verse 1. And in verse 2, he says this at the end of it, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, when he's talking to Daniel, he's talking about Israel. Okay? He's talking about Israel. 
And so it seems very likely that there is a separate resurrection for Israel than there is for the church. It's not two resurrections to life. It's one, but it's in several phases. I'll explain that in just a minute. So Daniel 12 gives us at least one passage that tells us that looks like saved Israelites will be, ra- will be raptured up or given their glorified bodies, that's what the resurrection is, at the end of the tribulation. Thirdly, Revelation talks about, in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the tribulation saints, those people who will be saved in the tribulation, okay? And this is uh, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants be also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. John specifically gets this from God. This is God's word, and it says the souls of them that were slain. It doesn't say the bodies. So the souls of the tribulation saints are in heaven, absent from the Lord. I'm sorry, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but we don't have a glorified body yet. So we're waiting for the resurrection for the glorified body. The church gets that at the rapture. According to Daniel 12, at least, it seems that Israel gets that after the tribulation. And the tribulation saints as well, after the tribulation. That's why Christ said, wait a little while. So we're talking about who in heaven has a glorified body that would be sitting on the throne. And so far, the only ones that qualify, according to what we've seen, are the church. Let me give you some more uh, substance for this. Again, everything that Christ gives us in the Bible is a picture of something else. Now, way back in May, I preached a message on the Jewish wedding and the picture that God gave us in the Jewish wedding of the process of salvation and Christ's church, okay? Christ's death and resurrection was a fulfillment of the picture that God gave to Israel in the feasts and festivals, Christ died on Passover. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb. So Passover was the perfect day for him to fulfill what Passover represented. When he was resurrected, Israel was celebrating the the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, in the Feast of the First Fruits, what would happen is Israel would go, and that was the beginning of harvest for them. They would go and gather a sampling of the harvest and bring it in, And God said you to bring that first sampling as a wave offering before the Lord in this feast. And they would take that sampling and they would wave it before the Lord. But that sampling would tell them the quality of the entire crop. Okay? So Jesus was the first fruits, the sampling. But in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, the Bible also tells us this. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So not only Jesus was resurrected at his resurrection, but there were saints from the Old Testament that were resurrected with him, and it never says they died again. I'm assuming that God took them to heaven after they showed themselves on earth just like Jesus did. Now, there were many people in Israel that did not believe in a resurrection or a second life, the Sadducees being one of them. 
Remember the wave offering, the sampling of God's harvest. Very possibly those saints that were resurrected in Matthew 27 were that sampling to prove to the Sadducees that God meant what he said about the resurrection. Okay? But God gave rules for Israel and their harvest as well. It wasn't just the feast. Remember the rules and the law that God gave for the harvest. Now, when we talk about the harvest, we're talking about the overall gathering of God's people. Talking about Israel. Now, in Israel's harvest, there were three stages. The first was the sampling, the wave offering. They would take the sample. The second was the main harvest. But remember, God told them in your main harvest, don't do the corners, and anything you drop, leave there for the poor. So the third phase was the gleanings. So what we see in the harvest of Israel is actually a very good pattern of what possibly could be the resurrection of Israel, the sampling at the resurrection of Christ, the main harvest of Jews at his second coming, and then the sampling, the, the uh, tribulation saints, the gleanings at the end. And there we have a three-phase harvest. Now, people will argue this and say, no, there's one resurrection for the, to life and one resurrection to those who are going to go to death. Yes, but the Bible gives us a three-phase picture of the harvest right in the Old Testament. And if we follow God's rules and follow how he gives us these pictures, then it makes perfect sense that this is very possible. So Israel, I believe, is not going to be raised, even believing Israel, is not going to be raised to glorified bodies until after the tribulation, which leaves only the church in heaven at this point. Which also makes sense because as we look at the Jewish wedding, in the Jewish wedding, um, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but basically the groom comes to the father of the bride, makes a deal with the father or bride, pays the bride price, and then leaves. And the bride stays with her father. That's the betrothal period. The groom goes and builds a home for his wife. And when the groom's father approves of the home, then the groom comes back. And his friend, who he left with the bride's family, announces the groom is coming. And immediately they go in and have the wedding. And then from there, they go and consummate the wedding. And after that is when they join together with all of the friends and family that are gathered to celebrate the marriage feast. Now, according to Revelation, the end times, basically, we look at that same pattern. Christ has already betrothed the church. We are his bride. That's what that means. We're betrothed to him, but we're not with him yet in body. He is coming back. When he comes back, remember he said to the disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. The word actually in Greek means rooms. He's preparing rooms for us as his bride. When God says it is time, he will return instantly. At the last trump, the announcement of Christ's return. He's not coming to earth. We're going up to meet him. And the wedding will take place in heaven. Now, we're gone as the church. Everyone else is still on earth. Only the church goes up for that wedding. You say, well, what about the Old Testament saints and those who are in the tribulation? They're the friends of the groom who celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus talks about it many times in his parables. He talks about those who were called to the wedding feast. He's talking about Jews. 
And so it's very possible that when we see these elders here, I believe it's talking about 24 elders representing the whole of the church from Pentecost until the rapture. And then everybody else is the friends and family of the, of the groom. Now, Jews obviously are the family of the groom, but they will be invited to the wedding feast, not to the wedding itself. Okay? So 24 elders sitting on the throne, representative of ruling, and again, the church is Christ's bride. He will be crowned king of kings. We will be ruling with him as, in, his, in essence, his queen. Okay? So we have that ruling authority. That's the sitting on the throne. And they had crowns of gold on their head. Who were promised crowns of gold? We just read it in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those who overcome will be given the crown of life. You say, well, that's the crown of life. That's not rewards. Right. We're not going to be casting our crowns of rewards to before Christ's feet. We're going to be casting these crowns. And it says later that the elders are casting their crowns before the feet of God. Why will we cast the, the crown of life? Because I think when we get to heaven we're going to realize that the life we were given, we did not deserve and we did not earn anyway. And therefore, that crown belongs to Christ in the first place. That's worship. Okay, now I've given you a lot of technical details and a lot of uh, intricacies of Scripture here, but when you take Scripture and you start looking at all of what God has given us and put it into the big picture, you can start to see where these pieces fall. Now, I may be completely wrong on this, but this is what I believe based on what I've studied and what I can see that God has given us, okay? The point is, there are 24 elders, and their purpose is to worship God. That's what we're going to do in heaven. We're not going to be going around wondering, oh, you know, are there going to be animals? Are there going to be daisies? I wonder if, you know, we're going to get great food. I have a friend in Michigan who says, absolutely, I know God's going to serve bacon because bacon is the best food Okay, it's, it's fun to imagine and think that, but when you get serious about worship, it all focuses on God, okay? And the elders that represent the church or saved people who will be in heaven, those redeemed, why are they there? Because God did it. You know, I had a conversation just recently with somebody, and they said, you know, when we get to heaven, I'm, I'm going to be surprised who's there. And I said, you know, I think the better perspective is when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised that we got there. Because we don't deserve it. And we're going to know that in full when we, when we step across that threshold. You talk about absolute worship and giving God the glory he deserves. That's when it's going to happen in its full. And that is the essence of what heaven is going to be. And you will never get tired of that. Now, if you say giving God glory and giving him worship, that sounds boring. That's a problem. Because what are we supposed to do in our lives as believers? Give him glory. See, the glory of God is what this life is all about as believers. And if we miss that, if the throne of God and his glory becomes something other than the center of everything we do, then we've missed our whole purpose. And there's no way we are worshiping him the way he wants us to because worship is about recognizing that he is at the center. All right, we're going to stop there because if we go to verse 5, then we've got to embark upon some other stuff. But um, next week, we'll pick up where we left off here. But again, the throne room of God 
Everything focuses on God's glory, God's power, God's authority. Okay? We cannot forget that. And so if, if we've got nothing else, I mean, it was a lot of interesting facts and, and things from Scripture today, but I don't want you to miss the centrality of God's authority in everything, including our own lives. Okay? All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll stop here for today, and then we'll pick this up next week. Father, again, we just praise you and thank you that you've given us your word, and you've explained things to us, maybe not in all the detail that we want, but there's enough there for us to get the main message. And we know, even from Revelation 4, that you are at the center of everything. You should be the center of our lives. Lord, John explains these things for us, not so that we can get caught up in the details, but so that we can truly learn to worship you as we should. And so, Lord, teach us to worship. Teach us to honor your authority, to give you the glory that you so desperately deserve, that we so desperately need to give you in all that we do. We thank you and praise you for who you are and what you're going to do in our lives. And we thank you for this message today from your word. Just go with us now. Help us to meditate on the things that you've given us so that your word and your power, your spirit will change our lives and change the way we live so we can truthfully be that light and salt as we go out from this place. Again, we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 20. I think that says 21. We're actually hymn number 20. How did I lose my hymn book? Here it is.